Just before we uh, turn to this part of the Bible together and think about it, um, I just have an announcement that uh, Scott uh, sent me um, just to remind you or, or maybe let you know for the first time that we, uh, next Sunday evening we expect um, to have a fair number of students here from Queen's uh, Christian Union. They're doing a, a church crawl um, and they're going to be here uh, next Sunday night and there's going to be a student supper um, afterwards um, over in the halls. So if you are a young adult, you're welcome to that, even if you're not still at the student stage, um, you're more than welcome to come over and join us. Um, there's going to be, I don't know, there's pizza and cocktail sausages and stuff um, Justine has been telling me about that um, she's going to be involved in preparing. So um, please do come along for that. And um, if you don't fall into that demographic, please do um, pray. Um, a lot of these young folks are coming along and they've maybe just moved to this part of the world. They're looking for a church. Um, so it'd be great if many of them uh, want to come and find their home here. Just as we uh, come to God's word, let's pray. Lord, as we do come now to hear from you, we pray that you would search us and know our hearts. And if there is any way in us which uh, disagrees with you, which um, is not in line with your will, we pray that you would speak to us and by your Holy Spirit that you would change us and form us into the people you would have us be. In Jesus' name, amen. Looks can be very deceptive, can't they? Um, in life, things aren't always just what they seem particularly when it comes to outward appearances. You know, sometimes things look well on the outside, but really they're not. Some people, you know, look like they've got it all together, but really inside they're falling apart. Sometimes people literally kind of paper over the cracks and, you know, a building um, isn't that safe, but, you know, they hide the fact that the walls are crumbling. But the opposite is also true. Sometimes things look absolutely wick, but they're not. If you can imagine, you know, maybe a cancer patient the day after chemotherapy or, or a day after surgery or something like that, you know, if you didn't know better, you'd think, what has that doctor done to you? You're really weak. You're worse than you were before. But of course, we know that they've done this treatment for good. Imagine somebody lived in a rainforest where the trees are green all year round. They don't shed their leaves. They'd never seen autumn before. And they came over and they were standing in your back garden and they said, what is wrong with that tree? All the leaves are shriveling and falling off. That tree must be really sick. But of course, the tree's perfectly healthy. It's fine. It's just what happens at this time of year. It's part of their life cycle and everything's good. And you know, churches can be a bit like this sometimes. They might look fine on the outside, appearances are kept, but in fact the place is spiritually dead. There's division, there are big problems, but you know we don't want anyone to know about it. And we've seen some of those in these letters we've been looking at in Revelation. But the opposite can be true as well. Some churches maybe are, are small, they maybe don't have great resources, their building might be crumbling down around them, and they struggle with all kinds of things. But actually, they're good churches. They're healthy churches. And I think the church in Philadelphia that we are looking at this evening is a bit like this. The Lord Jesus says to them in verse 8 of Revelation 3 that Marty read for us, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. They have little 
power. Other translations say that they have little strength or that they have limited strength. That they're, they're not a mega church, but Jesus is very positive about them. They're not flourishing. They don't have massive resources. Maybe in modern terms, the, the sound system's broken and the piano's out of tune and the lights are flickering off and on in the evening and the boiler plays up every now and then. And they don't have money to address any of these things. And as far as witnessing for Jesus goes, well, if we could get the money to fix the leak in the roof, then we might be able to send an evangelist or two out there. But these people are faithful people. I know your works, the Lord says. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Then verse 10, you've kept my word about patient endurance. So tonight, this little letter that we're looking at, um, nothing to do with spreadable cheese. It, it, it's an encouragement, an encouragement to the church at Philadelphia. You might remember, if you have a particularly good memory, that the last time I preached on a Sunday evening, I said that most in, the, in most of these seven letters, the Lord you know, picks out an issue that the people need to address. You know, He says, you're doing well at this and this, but I have this against you, or yet I hold this against you. But in the second letter, which was to Smyrna, and this letter, the sixth one, to Philadelphia, he doesn't say that. There's nothing held against them. This is a church that is doing really well. They're maybe discouraged by their lack of resources. They don't have a lot going for them that way. But the Lord says, I know. And I know you don't have much. I know your works. I see how faithfully you've been serving me. You haven't denied my name. And you've kept to my word. So this is very much a letter of encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. And so the plan this evening is very simple. Firstly, we're going to look at what the hardships are that they're facing. Then we're going to see how Christ encourages them. And then we're going to think about what it means for us. I was very worried this morning when David Johnson said, I have five points from each of the five stanzas of the psalm. I thought we were in for a 25-pointer. But thankfully, there were only five. Um, I'm much simpler than David is. I only have three. But let's get into it anyway. So the hardships they were facing. Well, if we've learned anything in these past few weeks about the first century um, Roman world, it's probably that it wasn't a very easy place to be a Christian. And that's a pretty big understatement. First of all, you had the Romans themselves, and they had loads of gods, um, and the worship of those gods often involved dubious activities, sometimes dubious sexual activities, and they expected everybody to join in in these rituals. But they also required everybody to worship the emperor. But in Israel and every place where the Jews lived in the Roman emperor, this was obviously a problem because the Jews knew that they were to only worship the Lord, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, the law says. So they were actually granted an exemption from taking part in the emperor worship, but it came at a price. They had to pay for this privilege. Literally, they paid extra tax. And so the Christians, as followers of the, the Jewish Messiah, they tried to get in on this too. They, very often, they claimed exemption on the same grounds. Synagogue leaders didn't like it. They didn't like the Christians anyway, you know, the, the, these people who were following this Jesus who they tried to get rid of. And one of the best ways for the Jews to get at the Christians was to go to the Romans and get them to do the dirty work for them, to say, no, these Christians, they're not really Jews. They're not with us. Get the Romans to persecute the Christians for us and try and snuff out all the Jesus stuff. 
And so one of the biggest issues facing the church, as if the Romans themselves weren't bad enough, was opposition from the Jewish synagogues. We get a glimpse of it right at the start of this letter. Remember that the Lord always introduces himself in these letters to the churches in a way that kind of communicates that he knows what they're going through. He knows his people. And he introduces himself in verse 7 to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One. And those words, holy and true, not go into the original language, but essentially they're, they're very, very intentionally chosen. They're words that come up time and again um, in the Greek Old Testament to describe God himself, the Hebrew God, the Lord. And David mentioned it this morning when the Lord's name's all in capitals in the Old Testament. That's the Lord's personal name, Jehovah, Yahweh, whichever version you want to use. But the Bible makes clear that only the Lord, only Yahweh is holy. Only Yahweh calls his people to be a, a holy nation. The idea of holiness has, has the sense of being, yes, pure on one hand, but, but more than that, just distinct, different. Um, I know you looked at some of the food laws a couple of weeks ago. I haven't listened to the sermon yet, but I think, in case I disagree with Marty, that one of the reasons for that is just simply that they were called to be different. They were called to be different from the other nations. They were meant to stand out. It's not that the meat itself was particularly harmful or whatever the food thing was. It was just about being distinct, about being called out, separate and different. And only the Lord does that. And that's the word used here by Jesus. And the word true is again deliberately chosen, a word found many times in the Old Testament where it describes the Lord, usually translated as faithful. Only the Lord is faithful to his people, despite the fact that they are unfaithful to him. So Jesus begins this letter by essentially introducing himself as the God of the Jews the God of the Old Testament. So we're given a hint that this is relevant to what the church is facing. But then in verses eight and nine, it's spelled out explicitly. I know that you have little power and yet you've kept my word, have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. It's pretty plain, it's pretty obvious. These Christians are facing opposition from the synagogue. And just as a quick aside, um, some people um, want to use particular passages from Revelation, and this um, is an example of one of those verses, to, to justify some kind of white supremacy or, or even just plain anti-Semitism. I'm not sure that anybody in Ravenhill tonight was going to take these verses and, and think that about them, but just to be clear, there's absolutely no justification for that. Some of the Philadelphian Christians themselves were Jews who had found Jesus to be the Messiah. The Jews that Jesus is talking about here are those who've rejected God's plan of salvation in Jesus, and they're directly opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says they're not Jews at all. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're liars. And this is something which goes again right back through the Old Testament to Moses. In, in Deuteronomy, the Lord tells Moses he wants a people of circumcised heart. Being a Jew isn't primarily about circumcision of the body, but it's a heart issue. To be circumcised physically, but not to obey the Lord. 
well, that will lead to judgment from the Lord. It runs right through the Old Testament. Jeremiah um, is, is spoken to through the Lord this way in Jeremiah 4. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Paul picks up this in the New Testament in Romans 2. He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So these Jews that are persecuting the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says they aren't truly Jews at all. Spiritually, they're dead. They might be ethnically Jews, but they are not spiritually so. So that's the main issue that these Christians are facing. They're weak, they don't have much, and maybe part of that is coming from the fact that the Jewish community um, in Philadelphia are persecuting them. They're trying their best to discredit them, to get the Romans to go against them, and they're suffering as a result of that. But I said this is a letter of encouragement, and it is. So how does Jesus encourage them then? Well, he does it in a number of ways. Firstly, with words of empathy. He says, I know. I know what you're going through. He's already spoken to them in words which tell them he knows um, what they're facing when he describes himself as the Jewish God, as, as Yahweh himself. But there's much more than that. He says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And a little later on again, he tells them, he knows, verse 10, that they have kept his word about patient endurance. The Lord says that in all they're doing, he knows, he knows about their works. Now, think about it for a wee moment. This church that we're looking at is weak and struggling. He says they have little power, um, limited power, limited resources. They're facing opposition. Perhaps full-blown persecution, maybe some of them have been um, hurt or even martyred as part of this persecution. And the Lord says, not only do I know about these troubles, but I know your works. I know your works. And he says twice that he knows they have kept his word. Their faithfulness hasn't gone unnoticed to the Lord. Sometimes, as Christians, I think, especially when things are hard, we're tempted to think that the things we do for the Lord don't really matter that much. Does anybody even notice that I do these things? You know, faithfully slogging away. We can become tired and discouraged. But the Lord sees. And that's infinitely more important anyway. Words from Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, which will be familiar. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving is in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says the same thing about prayer. He says, don't be like the hypocrites who stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, 
Close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Effectively, Jesus is proving his own words to be true to the church in Philadelphia. Keep going. The world might think that what you're doing is a complete waste of time. The church might be weak. Others in the church mightn't see what you're doing. But I know. I know your works. I know you've been standing firm. Words of empathy. Then words of authority. Jesus has described himself as the holy one, the true one in verse 7. We've looked at that already. But then he goes on to say he's the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. You maybe remember my silly little handy guide to the book of Revelation with the word lapau. Okay, so it's a letter, it's apocalyptic, prophetic, Old Testament and Old Testament helps us understand it and it leads us to worship. But that Old Testament is a key to help us work out what Jesus is saying here um, again because Jesus is referring directly to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20. The Lord says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now listen to this. He says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So not only is Jesus saying that he is God, Yahweh himself, he's laying claim to this role as well, to having the role of Eliakim. And um, if you want to look at Second Kings 18 in your spare time, you know, um, Eliakim has the God-given role of executing God's judgment in Jerusalem. Specifically, he executes judgment on some of the officials in the house of the king of Judah. Jesus speaks with words of empathy. I know your situation exactly. You're in an argument about who the true Jews are, and he speaks with these words of authority. Well, I'm the God that you both claim to serve. I'm the one who gets to judge on this issue. And so naturally then follows words of vindication. Verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Um, as Marty mentioned, I'm using the, the ESV. Um, really, the only reason that I'm doing that is because the first week we were in Revelation, I asked Naomi to read, and Naomi said, can I read from the ESV, please? And I said, sure, why not? So I'm still working in the ESV, and I like it, but um, sometimes um, the ESV is just a little bit too, you know, un-nuanced. It's, it's so keen to be a literal translation that it, it misses some of the nuance. And I think actually um, it's not the fact that they'll see that I have loved you as if it's something that happened in the past. Um, but without going into the depths of verbal aspect theory, I think it's probably more of a present tense. They'll see that I love you. It's not something that was once true. Oh yes, I loved you back then. It's something that's true now. Um, and the NLT sticks its head above the water and says they will acknowledge that you're the ones I love. The Lord is saying to them very presently, you are the ones that I love. The church in Philadelphia is known by the Lord, they're loved by the Lord, and they have on their side the Lord Almighty, and they have this great hope that they will be vindicated. Then the Lord speaks words of protection. 
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Again, I little want to, want to nitpick a little bit with the ESV. It's a little unnuanced because it's not that the Lord is going to keep them from trials. Um, it's more that he's going to keep them in the trials. Um, he's, going, he's not going to lift them out of it, but he's going to guard them. They're going to be protected. And again, the NLT um, conveys this a little bit better. Because you've obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Not that I'll keep you from it, but I'll protect you from it. You won't be harmed by it ultimately. It will happen, it'll be hard. It's something that's true for all Christians. The world around us is hard, but ultimately it can't throw anything at us which the Lord can't protect us from. We're his and nothing can change that. And then Jesus gives them words of future hope. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now these words of Jesus, as you delve into them, you realize that they are absolutely brilliant. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, Philadelphia was an incredibly religious city. It was like um, a mini Athens, if you can remember from Acts 18, 19-ish. Um, Athens is such a, a religious hub um, in the Roman world. Well, Philadelphia was like a little version of that, and they, they worship all these gods. And there was a custom in the temples in Philadelphia that if somebody had served the state well, maybe they were a magistrate or maybe they'd um, served as a priest in one of these temples or had just donated a lot of money to the Roman Empire, well, they were usually um, honored by having a pillar built in one of the temples with their name on it so that everybody who came to this temple to worship this God would see and remember. And Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. See, this is what these people did. They, they, they built this pillar that might one day crumble and fall, but Jesus said, you will live on in a temple that is an eternal temple. Jesus goes on to say, never shall he go out from it. And this is particularly brilliant because Philadelphia was a city that lots of people liked to go out of. I think makes me think of Larne. That's what everybody where I live says about Larne. You know, the best things that wrote out of it. But Philadelphia was a place people liked to leave for a very different reason. Um, and the, the, the reason is that it was on the edge of a very active volcanic area. Now this was a double-edged sword because on one hand you had rich and fertile soil, so people wanted to live there. On the other hand though, you did have earthquakes. So you know, you had to weigh that up. And it was very common when the earth began to shake that people fled the city so that the buildings didn't fall on top of them. Until the shaking had stopped and until they were sure all the aftershocks had gone. And in fact, some historians say that many people, out of fear for their lives, left the city every night and slept in tents outside, and then went back in during the day to work there. But they wouldn't sleep there in case their house would collapse on top of them. But Jesus says, if you remain in me, you'll come to a place where you'll never have to go out. You'll never have to leave again. I'm your security. I'm an unshakable foundation. And then he says he'll write on them the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem, and his own new name. 
Again, Philadelphia knew what this was all about. They were a new city because the old city had been destroyed about 50 years before this surprise, surprise by an earthquake. Jesus says, your new city might fall again, but I'm gonna build you as a pillar and a temple that'll never, ever go away and a city that'll never fall. You'll never have to go out from it again. And the name you have is a new city that will never, ever fail. So Jesus gives them words of empathy. I know what you're facing, authority in everything that you're facing. Well, I am God and vindication. You're on the right side of history here. Words of protection. Yes, it'll be tough, but I'm gonna protect you. And words of future hope. If you overcome, you'll live forever. So what does this say to us um, in a very different church 2,000 years later? Well, I suppose all of the above would be a good start. You know, Jesus knows what we're going through. He knows our works. He is God and he is in control and on our side. We have that future hope of vindication and we have words of protection no matter what we face in this world. Ultimately, with him on our side, nothing can touch us with words of future hope that if we come, overcome, we'll live forever. But I want to spend our last few moments together this evening um, on some words in this passage which we haven't thought about just yet from verse eight, where Jesus speaks about an open door. He says in, in verse eight, he says, behold, I'm sorry, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What is this open door that Jesus is talking about? We have a a few options, well, two options to be precise. And as one commentator says that there are two possibilities, and as often the case in writings of the Apostle John, both possibilities are to be embraced. John does this all the time. He, He gives us something that could have two meanings, and the reason why he doesn't specify is because we're meant to think about both. So the first possibility is that Jesus has opened the door of salvation. No one can shut it. Salvation in all its fullness is available to anyone who will seek it. Now this doesn't mean that it's an easy thing for everyone. Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The open door is really narrow. It's the tough way, but it's open. It's irreversibly open. We sometimes sing to God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. There's encouragement. Yes, it's a a narrow road to this door, but the door is open, irreversibly open. So the Philadelphian Christians are are saved and they're secure. And so Jesus is saying, look, I've put this door in front of you and no one can shut it. You won't lose your salvation no matter what you're facing. And that's true for us today too, if we're saved. No matter what we face, our salvation is secure. But the second implication of an open door is a door of opportunity. 
In the New Testament, um, when a door is talked about, it's usually actually meant as a, a door of opportunity in terms of gospel work. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians in um, his first letter to them in chapter 16, he says, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened for me. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. And he asked the Colossians to pray for him that God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. The open door is a door of opportunity to tell others about the gospel. And this weak church, this church which seems to be on its knees, has an open door in front of it, Jesus says. Now when Jesus sets an open door before a church, it doesn't mean that there aren't obstacles. David talked about many of the obstacles we face um, this morning from those in power and from those in the world, those who are directly opposed to us. And this is absolutely right because after Paul um, says that God has opened a door for him, he immediately says in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he says, and there are many who oppose me. That's the first thing he says after he mentions the open door. There are obstacles, but when Jesus opens a door, a door that is open, no one can shut that door. Even when we think we have little power, when we don't have the resources, that's all right. It just means we have to depend on him. And the reason I wanted to finish with this tonight is because I think, and I believe very strongly, that here in Ravenhill, the Lord has placed an open door in front of us. Several months ago now, um, right here, um, East Belfast Presbytery met and, and Marty was invited to tell the Presbytery a little bit about how things have been going in the last few years at Ravenhill. And he said something um, that stuck with me. And I don't think he was thinking about Revelation 3 when he said it. But he said, God just seems to be opening door after door and we just keep trying to walk through it. And I think what has been happening here, and whilst it might be a bit daunting at times and we might face opposition, the Lord reminds us that when he opens, no one can shut. So if he's opening a door, it's okay to walk through it. The opposition that Philadelphia faced was very, very strong. And it would have been tempting for them just to hunker down, to huddle down, until things blew over a bit. But Jesus says no to that. <laughs> it's not time to play it safe. It's time to go. And I think Jesus is making the same claim for us today that he made for them. I've put in front of you an open door of salvation and of mission. I think it's not just Ravenhill, but we actually live in a cultural moment where the door is wide open. Yes, as, as we thought about this morning, there are many, many challenges in our world to spreading the gospel. But the door's wide open because the modern worldview has completely collapsed. And in this postmodern world, absolutely everything's up for grabs. The definition of almost anything is up for debate. Definitions aren't set in stone anymore, and people more than ever are searching for meaning. The pandemic has prompted more and more people to search more than they did before. So maybe as a response tonight, as a response to that open door, you could pray for just five people that you know who don't know Jesus yet. Because Jesus has the keys. He has the keys of salvation. He has the keys to death and Hades. But he also has the keys to any door of opportunity to spread the gospel. And he says that the door is open. 
And if we can pray for these people, well, we can pray confidently because Jesus says if he opens a door, no one can shut it. Hang on to those words as you pray maybe for those five people tonight. So let's step forward in faith. Let's give what we have, however weak it seems, to Christ. And let's go through the door to serve him as he calls us. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we are so thankful tonight for the salvation that we know in Jesus Christ. Thank you that undeserving as we are, he has died in our place. He has paid the price that we simply couldn't pay. He has given amazing grace and we've been drawn into your kingdom and we've been given his righteousness. Thank you that that in itself is a, a door which is open and which no one can shut. But Lord, give us eyes of faith to see other doors that you will open for us. Doors of opportunity to serve you in whatever way that might be for each of us. Doors of opportunity to, to tell the good news to others. Lord, give us the confidence to do that because when you open a door, no one else can shut it. Lord, help us to, to go forward from this place in confidence in you and that you have said you will build your church and that the gates of hell will not stand against it. So, Lord, use us for the purpose of building your kingdom um, here and wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.